Stoveleg Media, igniting conversation. Good day and welcome to Extreme Common Sense with your hosts, Trisden and Ray. We hope to leave some of the social polarization behind and dig into the gray area middle of society and politics. When the far left and the far right hate us, we will have succeeded. Welcome everybody to Extreme Common Sense with Tristan and Ray. We've got a really fun show planned for everybody today. Uh, we've got my best friend coming in to talk about critical race theory. You have Brendan more Fenton. best friends than anyone I know. No, no, I have only one best friend, but I do have a hierarchy of friends that I put on like a totem pole. So I always know at any given moment who is where on the friendship totem pole. So would Brendan refer to you as his best friend? That's a question only he can answer. Okay, well, maybe that's his first question that's once fair. he comes on. And we probably have to be uh, honest up front and tell people that we're doing this uh, via the virtual reality world. Again, if you ever hear any glitches or anything like that. And it's slightly disconcerting for me because I have to look at myself as I'm speaking, which is a little bizarre. I guess I could X that out and just talk. And I know that's yeah, not a problem for you. I, I, and I know that's not a problem for you because I know the way you are with mirrors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've never seen a mirror I didn't love. <laughs> no, no, give so, it time. Uh, give it time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. So uh, how was your uh, how was your holiday? How was your Christmas? It was great. How was everything? It was it was wonderful. Yeah, everything was cool. Very you know very mellow. Family gathered for uh, some prime rib that I don't think my wife will listen. Is un- was a little undercooked. Her mother in law <laughs> loves that stuff like mooing, and it's a little a little undercooked for me. I, I, I would prefer a little bit of you know not brown by any means, but it was like pink red blood. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. I, I think it depends on the cut of meat. It's pretty, you know, I like rare or, you know, semi-rare meat if it's really, really good. But very often you get a cut of meat and it's chewy. Yeah, and no, it was good. I mean, it was it was prime yeah. rib. It was not cheap, but uh, they, they definitely, so, so then we tried to nuke a couple of pieces and, you know, you don't want to do that with a good piece of meat. But I'm not complaining. It was a wonderful Christmas. Got a few neat things and mostly clothes and golf balls at this age. Yeah, very nice. Can't beat that. No. Things that you lose both. So we were going to talk about critical race theory, but should we just talk about your meat? Wow, very nice, very nice. We we could do that. It would be a short episode. Ba-dum-bum. So <laughs> critical race theory is today's topic. Wow, another light topic. Think, yeah, this should be pretty fun because you know until I started doing the least bit of research for the show, like I only have the most uh, rudimentary minuscule idea of. Yeah, I don't know much about critical race theory, and I think a lot of people are mad about it, and I would say a lot of people are also uneducated like myself. And Brendan's expertise is? I think he is a high school teacher and uh, in California. So, like, you're going to get the dynamic of somebody who I would assume teaches critical race theory, but then also somebody that's on the uh, on the left coast, sort of, uh, you know, different from us here in the in the flyover states. Fantastic, man. I say let's do it. Let's do, let's do it. it. Let's bring on. Let's bring him on, Absolutely. ladies and gentlemen, Brendan Fenton. Welcome, welcome. I'm excited to be here on the world-renowned uh, Extreme Common Sense. Yep, we are. So thank yeah, you for having so me. World famous in Richmond and Berea, Kentucky. 
<laughs> we do ask that you tell all your family and friends to listen, so uh, so our numbers jump about five or six uh, downloads this week. Nice, <laughs> right, you can do that. You'll get that uh, seven-year-old demographic you're hoping for. <laughs> That's right. So tell us a little bit about what you do, man, and, uh, and a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll start first by saying, yeah, I have to rank Trizen as my uh, my best friend, right? Cool. Especially since I'm a, a guest on the show. Very um, I might change my opinion later, but, you know, we'll, we'll start with that. Um, so, yeah, uh, like Tristan said, I, I teach high school uh, history, social studies in California, in Southern California. Um, it's a nice place to so be. So that, yeah, it's, especially this time of year, it's nice. Got to the, yeah. the snow yesterday and hopefully get around to the beach later on today. That's great. Um, but, uh, yeah, so high school history, so that's, you know, world history, U.S. history, government, economics. Uh, do a little psychology in there. Um, prior to teaching, I, I worked uh, for about 10 years with uh, refugees, um, kind of same age group, high school kids, but kind of acclimating them to the United States education system. Um, I've worked in juvenile delinquents uh, group homes, so kind of spread all over the place a little bit. What uh, the refugees are interesting before we get to, can, is the acronym CRT? Can we do that? CRT, and we all know what we're talking about. Before we Critical get to race theory, there you what, go. Was, uh, what was the work with refugees, Brandon? That sounds very interesting. Yeah, it was a, it was a great job. Um, so I worked as part of the International Rescue Committee, IRC, um, and that's a refugee resettlement organization. So uh, when refugees are, are granted um, status in the United States, they get sent um, to some city, usually somewhere where they have a, a, a base culture. So in San Diego, there's a lot of Somalis mm -hmm. uh, and Burmese. And so... Um, I worked with the high school kids. They come in. Most of them had never been in school in their life. Uh, definitely not in an English speaking school. Um, so, you know, they get thrown right into a normal everyday high school. So my job was to help them um, basically acclimate to that setting, um, you know, to be in biology for the first time in their life in a, a new language is, is pretty tough for anybody. Um, so these, these kids were um, getting used to America. They were getting used to American high schools, um, English, you know, all, all that comes with that. So it was a, it was a great job. It was, it was a lot of fun. Are these war-torn refugees, or how, how are they winding up on in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it would really depend on their country. But for Somali, uh, Somalia, it was you know, war-torn. They've had decades of, of uh, you know, no-functioning government. No. Uh, the Burmese students, they've had, um, obviously, their coups there in, in Burma and, uh, again, a lack of a functioning government, some genocide. Um, we had Syrian refugees. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it really depends on where they're coming from, but primarily war, uh, famine, those type of things. Um, but, but, yeah, obviously traumatic experiences for, for anyone, but especially 12, 13, 14-year-old kids. Yeah, I can imagine what that's like. I mean, you know, if I had to go to Somalia at this point and, and be thrown into a Somalian school, that, that would be pretty tough. Like, or, you know, at that age, of course. But Crazy. I can't even imagine how hard that would be. No. Yeah, but you know they're no. they're resilient and uh, high school kids they can kind of fit in anywhere. So they they overall manage pretty well, I think. Yeah, my wife taught uh, English as a second language for thirty five years, so it was kind of cool. You go into her classroom and it was like a mini United Nations. You know, kids from all <laughs> over the world. Um, right. And, and uh, in Lexington, a lot of them would be traveling, uh, uh, the offspring of traveling professors who were working at UK and such. So it wasn't there weren't as many tragic stories, but golly. So I guess you have an opinion on what's going on at the border. But before we talk about that, I guess we should do CRT. Sure. Can yes. you explain so, it, Brandon? Can you explain <laughs> it? Because nobody, nobody knows what the heck it is. 
Right. So Brendan. what's this? What's this thing that we're all uh, mad Brandon? about, right? Brandon, all right, let me write that. Brandon with it. Oh, I've heard it oh, so many different ways. I've heard much worse. So. Oh, you had to. Yes, you had to have. Yes. Um, we want yeah. to make sure they get his name right so the hate mail goes directly to him. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's <laughs> probably true, too. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this. what is everyone up in arms about? What is CRT? What is critical race? Um, I think so. There's, there's kind of two answers, right? There's the actual definition, and then there's what everyone kind of thinks it is or what everyone's afraid it might be. Um, so the actual basic definition just again very simplified i'm sure you can get much more uh detailed definition if you bring a professor in or something but it's a it's a grad level uh curriculum for like law school students um that basically looks at inequalities in society um wherever they may be and um tries to find uh racist or racial explanations for it so if there's a inequality in um convictions in you know uh, crime convictions um it would look at the uh, racial components that might be behind that. If there's inequality in uh, wealth, family wealth, they're going to look at the racial um, history and the racial implications behind that. So, again, that's uh, a law school level class. You know, that's not what's taught in school. Um, I don't think there's any teacher in America that K through 12 is teaching that type of critical race theory. I mean, maybe there is, but it's not. That's not what people are really upset about. Um, and I think, I think that graduate. Uh, the graduate level that you're talking about uh, developed somewhere maybe in the 80s. Um, yeah. And this was by people who were trying to take a little different look at, you know, where we found ourselves and some of the institutions that got us to where we are. Right. And so, yeah, it's been a, around a, a while. Um, definitely, you know, all these parents that are upset about it now, I suppose, you know, they were in school when it's been around too, right? So it's not this new thing. It's like you said, from the 80s. Um what I think people are sort of attributing CRT to now is um, they're afraid the K through 12 schools are maybe taking that curriculum and putting it on third or fourth graders and having third or fourth graders examine, you know, their racial identity and what that does to people, whether they're an oppressor or an oppressed person, a victim. Um, again, that's not what happens. Um, and then I think also kind of the broader things, people are starting to kind of lump anything they're uncomfortable talking about into CRT. So if they're uncomfortable right. about something, we'll just put the umbrella of CRT over that. Exactly. So, and you feel like um, that's just like, basically that is not something that typically happens, right? Like, so what people are mad about is more of a, uh, a red herring than an actual thing that people should, because we all probably agree, right? That you shouldn't teach third graders and fourth graders that white people are oppressors and black people are victims, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, I don't teach elementary, but there's obviously grade level appropriate things. And I, I think there's no, no issue. I have no issue with having elementary school students learn about the past events in our history, which include slavery and, you know, racism um, in a great, great appropriate way. Um, but yeah, the CRT is not that. It's not that's not what happened. So I think this has kind of been used as a I don't know, political football or whatever you want to call it to to give something kind of concrete for people to be mad at, and it's kind of a rallying source more than what's actually going on in schools for the most part. So how do you handle it in your classroom, Brandon? So you know, so like U.S. history, uh, at least out here, I don't know about where you guys are, but it's an eleventh grade class, so. Um, uh, when I teach U.S. history, um, 
we talk about the the history of America and the good and the bad, right? And that includes Jim Crow laws and redlining and you know all that stuff, the the Tulsa massacre. I mean, you have to talk about those things because they happened. It's not it's not an right. opinion. It's not me saying, you know, this is what I think should have happened or did happen, but it's history and this is a history class. Um, and so with all those things, I mean, race is a part of it. We have to talk about race and race relations to understand why a mob would attack a black community in Oklahoma. We have to understand why their covenant laws that would restrict where black families could live. You have to have a race conversation about that. That doesn't mean I'm going to jump in and say all white people are bad or all African-Americans are victims, but we have to talk about the history of race relations in class. And so, um, so yeah, we talk about it. It's, it's history. We talk about it, but we don't get into CRT curriculum where we're talking about oppressors and victims like that. I apologize if, if there's a background noise. I'm, I'm doing this in the back office at the bowling center, and it's a holiday week, so we're actually quite busy. So if there's some background <laughs> noise, I, I apologize to you guys. Well, if I get too boring, you can just so, jump off and go bowling. Yeah. <laughs> so this <laughs> might be more of a Trisden question because he kind of likes these things. So with the way uh, Brenda just explained that, do you think conservatives would be naturally opposed? Oh, so leaving CRT aside, but – uh, Brendan's making the point that in order to understand things, you have to know the history. Do you think our conservative friends would get upset at that? That makes perfect sense to me. I could definitely see Republicans or certainly people on that side just saying, I do not want the Tulsa race massacre taught at all. That's crazy. I could certainly see that. Yeah. Um, now, now again, if, we can, I, I, if we can look at that actual incident, Brendan, I'm a 61-year-old man, and I literally didn't hear about that Tulsa race riot until probably eight or ten years ago, a little bit like Juneteenth. But that Tulsa race riot, I I never heard that mentioned, and I'm a lover of history, and uh, my daughter teases me all the time, Dad, you probably should have taught history. I never knew about that Tulsa race riot, and it's just an absolute abomination. You know, just a, a black mark on American history that was simply buried. Yeah, I, I think, and yeah. you're not alone in that. I think that's the that's true for a lot of folks. And I mean, even in our textbooks, you know, it, it maybe gets one or two sentences in the textbook. It's not really talked about um, too much. And, and there's many, many other examples of things like that. But yeah, it's things that get buried. And and again, I understand, like as Tristan's saying, like conservatives might be a little upset about it because you know I hear sometimes the argument that high school history should be about building patriotism and, and, you know, well, it should strictly be about love, you know, learning to love your country. And of course I want students to love the country. I love the country, but you can't love something if you don't really understand it. Right. And you got to understand the full picture of it. Um, know the good and the bad before you get into saying, you know, we're going to ignore some parts of it. You know, it's, it's now do you try to teach that Fenton in such a way that you actually are very cognizant of the fact that, I think it could very easily be taken that, wow, white people are kind of bad. And, like, do you do that in a way that says, look, like, the ancestors of certain white people were bad. But do you have to – are you consciously teaching that in your mind in a way that doesn't create the, the victim uh, oppressor mentality? I mean, I, yeah, I guess. I'm definitely aware of the fact that I don't want to constantly – every day of class be talking about another terrible thing white people have done. So I'm definitely uh, aware of that issue. I don't come out and say, okay, class, remember that not all white people are bad or, you know, nowadays white people, nowadays white people are great and old white people are bad. You know, we don't have those kind of discussions. But, uh, <laughs> Easy, brother. 
<laughs> but yeah, but, um, but it's something I think about. And so as I'm building my curriculum or making my lesson plans, I'm making sure to incorporate not just the bad stories about white people and good stories about Americans, but making sure I have stories about Mexican Americans too, especially down here in Southern California. I'm going to have stories about, or you know, lessons about Asian Americans and also, you know, some of the accomplishments of, of, uh, uh, historical figures. So I'm, a, I'm definitely aware of that, but I try to have a, a broad enough kind of base for my history classes that it's not the only thing they're hearing about white people. If it, does that make sense? You know what, though? Absolutely. And you know yeah. what, Brandon Trisden, I, I would say this about history. History is not objective. Uh, history is, is, is subjective. And, and uh, an example that I use, so we'll take it out of uh, critical race and we'll take it out of black and white. But I've often said this, and Brendan, as a history teacher, I'm sure you'll be with me on this. If you took a Russian history book from the 1960s and an American history book from the 1960s and looked at how they covered the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they are going to be two completely different uh, explanations of what happened. Why? Because it's not objective. It's subjective. Now, I'm certain, in, or, or let's look at it another way. If Russia were the only country in the history of the world to literally use a weapon of mass destruction, how do you think American history books would view that? Not the way that it's viewed in, in our history books now. So point being that it, it, is, an obje it, it is a subjective entity history. It, it, it is filtered through who's looking at it. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and, you know, that's I think that's one of those skills that we're trying to teach in history class now to understand that. And so when we look at you talk about the bombing of Hiroshima, um, when we look at that, we look at a Japanese textbook and an American textbook to, to see those different views. Cause that's something the kids can actually take away and use, you know, knowing the date or the, how many people died in Hiroshima. I mean, that's oh, not something, that, not something that probably kids are going to use, um, you know, in their life, but understand those different viewpoints is kind of important. So definitely something we touch on. Yeah. And I, and I wasn't being Belushi. I wasn't being Belushi in animal house. When the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor, I was saying that the Russian as, as the two cold, as the two primary cold war warriors, that use of the, uh, uh, you know, the true weapon of mass destruction was looked at differently by the Russians when they were fighting the cold war against us than it was by us. Because for us, it was, you know, I, I don't know that anybody necessarily celebrated it, but it was, uh, you know, you'll hear there's not many left unfortunately but the old world war ii folks would say you know we saved millions and millions of lives because we would have had to invade that island of japan it would have been terrible so that was actually a good thing i i don't think that the russian textbook looked at the u.s using those weapons in a way that the u.s looked at them they, ju they just simply didn't and obviously the japanese would would be even further down that road so you know i mean when when you say that you keep in mind that you don't want to say white people are bad. That, that, that's, that, that is great, but it's a shame that that's even sort of part of it, right? Because it's, it's, it's the history that happens. So, you know, how do you qualify that or quantify that? And I, and I guess also, that's what that people get upset at. Of, uh, they think white people are being victims. social media. Yeah. Well, no, I think that's a social media thing. I think if you get on Twitter, uh, you know, or, or some of these social media sites, it is sort of a white people bad mentality and i think you do sort of get backed into this you know going through history all white people now should be very apologetic for you know what our previous ancestors and white people of the past have done but i think also something to keep in mind i think especially with slavery 
Man, those people were rich white people. It wasn't your average white person didn't have, uh, you know, a group of slaves. Like, 99% of white people were completely disinvested in slavery. It was just very wealthy people. And not saying all wealthy people are bad, but I just think to sort of paint white people with that white people bad brush, even at any era. I mean, if you look at well, I don't uh, think the it's that though, Saturday. Uh, yeah, no, I don't. I don't, I don't think it's that. I think. I think what gets lost. Now, this is just my opinion, and, and and you guys can certainly disagree. That's why we have this show. But I think that there are, and this will sound pretentious because now I'm going to speak for you know I'm going to sound like I'm better than my fellow white folks. But I think the vast majority of white people, the problem is they don't realize the benefit that they that their whiteness got them throughout American history. And it had nothing to do with earning, owning slaves, but it had to do with, as a white person, things were simply better for you than it was for people of color. And I think, in my opinion, that's largely true through 2021, 2022. I don't know how much of that has changed. I mean, what do you guys well, I think? think? That, no, I don't think that's not true. But what I do think is that I think every time in history when you want to say white people are evil for doing X, you're going to find a pretty substantial group of white people that stood up against that type of tyranny. Fair. There was always a large group of white folks that were against slavery, uh, against Jim Crow, uh, etc. So I just think it's easy to paint that with that broad brush of white people bad, you know, black people oppressed, when I just don't think that's completely fair. And certainly the folks today that that's are alive, point. you know, are overwhelmingly very much in favor of e at least equality and certainly of making some of that history right. No, that's a great point. I think that's uh, maybe that's a different, little different approach that you could take to kind of show both sides of that. Well, no, I just, I just think you have to look at this in in such a way that doesn't. Again, if you're stereotyping all whites, what's different than doing that 50 years ago and stereotyping all blacks or all Mexicans or whatever? Right. Like, look, I think the ultimate goal for everybody should be to try and come together more so than create an enemy. And, and I think when you, you know, when you sort of paint that men bad or white men bad, etc., look, it's just a bad place to start your discussion. There is some merit to that in historically speaking, but it's not it's not a universal truth. So I think we have to be able to find that nuance. No, I think that's a great point. Brendan, what do you think? I mean, do you think that maybe some of the opposition is people, to Tristan's point, feeling as though, man, I'm just getting picked on here? You know, I mean... I suppose, and I, you know, I don't know what everyone feels, but um, I, I guess it, it could be people feeling picked on. But I think some of this again is being used by uh, politicians or groups to kind of fuel that. Because you look at some of these CRT laws that are, are uh, in school districts that are going around um, in Texas, Oklahoma, places like that, and the language they're using to ban CRT. I put that in like air quotes because again, CRT is not really taught in K through twelve. It's broad language that sounds great. It says, you know, you can't teach that one race is better than another race. Well, sure, that's we can all agree that is how school should be run. But it's so broad, so they're getting these people, you know, riled up and saying, oh, that must be what CRT was doing. CRT was teaching that one race was better than the other. That's not what's going on. And now people right. are riled up about something that the what didn't exist. And now well, it's so broad that now anything you say in class is like. Does that fit in the law or does it not? It gets confusing. So how limiting are those laws and what are they saying that can't be taught? And what subjects can't be broached? <laughs> well, so we don't have those in California, luckily. Um, right. But uh, so the way I've heard in Oklahoma and Texas and especially Texas is that, you know, it's it's not that they're really limiting now. Like I would go in and teach the same class I'm teaching right now if I lived in Tulsa. 
um, because they're not really at this point restricting curriculum. They're just saying very broadly, you can't have discussions where um, people get uncomfortable about race. And wow. that's like, well, what, what does that mean? You how know, do you define that? Um, yeah. right. How do you define that? And like, how do you kind of tiptoe around that? And so I think that if you want, if you want to teach that in Oklahoma, you can just go right and still teach the same thing you're teaching. But if you're a new teacher, maybe you're afraid that you might lose your job. If you cause too much trouble, you might just say, you know what? Tulsa might make someone, uh, Tulsa yeah. massacre might make someone uncomfortable. I'll just leave that off the table and we'll talk about something else. So I think that's where it's going to do more damage than actually saying you can't teach this. It's just going to, it's going to make people afraid to kind of open up their classroom to discussion. That's kind of my secondhand knowledge of it. But. Sure. Sure, sure. My, mine as well. I've read a little bit, but I, I, Tristan, I'm sorry, you were going to ask something, but I just wonder then if, so then who is it behind these laws? I guess I'd have to ask. And that's a pretty general question, probably difficult to answer, but, but what is the bubbling up? What is the ground uh, swell that is causing people to pass these laws? What, what, what is it we're missing? What, what's going on that we don't get? Or, or is it just the same old, same old? Or more of the same old, same old. Uh, I mean, uh, Trism probably has a, a good insight on that. But, I mean, I think to me, it seems like it's just a, a political rallying cry. It's it's yeah. a way to rally a base, um, and you know, different things have been used in the past. This is the one they're using right now, and it's pretty effective because it's it's at the local level, it's at the school board and local level. Um, it's kind of taking storm, but that's that's my opinion. I don't know. Yeah. And you certainly see a lot of this. Uh, you know. People are interviewed, especially around the gubernatorial race in Virginia, uh, which a lot of people credit uh, the painting of critical race theory as the reason that the Republican uh, governor just won that gubernatorial election. But, yeah, it's the same folks that you ask why they're voting will say, because I want critical race theory not taught in Virginia schools. You'll ask those same folks, well, what about critical race theory specifically do you not like? And it's like, well, you know, I don't know as much about it. I just know I don't like the way it's painted to me. So, yeah, I definitely think, again, to recoin the phrase I used earlier, but it is kind of a red herring. It's just another one of those things that Republicans do so great with creating, you know, something to rally around. You know, like the war on Christmas that we, we did last week. It's it's not really real, but if you can get people mad enough about something, they're, you know, they're going to come together on it. So, in a certain sense more of the same same old same old just just uh yeah, well, certainly, marketed differently certainly political i mean obviously it is you know i think it's a lot more to do with winning elections than it is about whether or not we teach the the tulsa massacre in 11th grade history class um but one thing was pretty fascinating uh, ray and you probably saw this uh last night we watched um the meet the press special on critical yeah, race yes. theory in anticipation of the show yes but the, the, the teacher that was told that if they wanted to teach the Holocaust in high school history, yeah. they also had to teach the opposing view of the Holocaust. And and so I don't know. I've heard that, and that was something I'd heard previously. But, man, what is the opposing view of the Holocaust, <laughs> and how would you teach that in a high school history class? Like it didn't happen? Is that where they were going with that? Yeah, that's really not equivalent to, to- – the point you made earlier, you know, here we are in central Kentucky and probably the greatest abolitionist in the country's history was Henry Clay, who was a proud Lexingtonian. And so that was kind of your point. So you talk about slavery, but you also had people like Henry Clay throughout America's history. That's not exactly the equivalent of both sides of the Holocaust, is it? 
I mean, I was just fascinated by that. So I guess it made me want to dig deeper into very Texas specific discussions about what they teach because I mean, I I just I don't I didn't know that was a mainstream thing to to, to say that we have to teach the opposing view of the Holocaust. But again, I wouldn't know what that would be. And that was like at the elementary right. level too. That wasn't you know that was like teaching fourth or fifth graders or having it wasn't even teachers they're having a book available for fourth graders that show the opposing say so it's, it's ridiculous and you can see how if you're a teacher and again maybe a, a new teacher fresh out of school and you're teaching fourth grade you're like well i don't want to have a book about opposing the holocaust so i just won't have any books at all about the holocaust because you have to you right. know and so then you just ignore it so then right. you have a class that's not getting that information and that's right again that's where i think the damage is more than anything else that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Yes. Ben, what's it like politically in California? I mean, having grown up there, you know, as a small child, but certainly never into, into politics much. What, what do you what's it like? Because I bet it's almost the opposite of what Ray and I see every day, which is just an overwhelming amount of of right. But, you know, plenty of left. But I wonder if it how it is for you. Well, I mean, you know, California is a huge state, so I, I don't know the numbers, but I, I guarantee there's more registered Republicans in California than, you know, all of Kentucky and Tennessee combined, right? Um, so, I mean, there's plenty of, of, of right wing here. Um, I don't think it's as vocal or maybe just uh, kind of in your face as maybe back there, uh, just kind of stereotypically thinking. But uh, but it's definitely there. I mean, I have, I have kids in class who occasionally I hear from their parents that, you know, they don't want their kid to hear anything about um, vaccines or something. If we're doing a current event talking about COVID vaccines, they don't want the kid hearing about vaccines. So, I mean, it's definitely exists. It's not like it's this just left wing paradise out here, um, but it's definitely probably more behind the scenes, I would say, than than how you are. Yeah, no, and I'm always fascinated by that because I picture it. You know, in Kentucky, certainly people feel very fine walking into the grocery store. And saying whatever they want politically out loud, you know, in a very in terms of being very far right. But as a as a Democrat, you certainly wouldn't do that. So I wonder if that's sort of is that how you would feel in California? Like you know, you could be walking around anywhere and hear somebody saying, you know, something negative about uh, Republicans without sort of fear of repercussion, or is that no? I mean. Yeah, sort of. I mean, probably not like drastic things. Like I think a huge hot topic like abortion or something, you wouldn't walk into the grocery store and talk about that. But uh, oh, I but I mean, yeah, but um, but I mean, just like I don't know, more kind of left center topics. I think would be yeah, more socially talked about, brought up in the bar or whatever. People are gonna talk about um, issues a little bit more freely that are left center. I would say in public. Nice. So going back, of course, just to the, the CRT, what do you think, what could Democrats do with, with their messaging to sort of, I mean, to, to get a bit of this argument back? Because I think we're all in agreement that it's more of a, a discussion point than it is about the actual teaching of, of certain things in, because it's not really an issue, according to you. So how do we fix that messaging nationwide so it doesn't become a, just a political issue? If I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be working on a campaign somewhere, um, probably make a lot more money. But uh, I think it's, you know, unfortunately, I think it's the same problem that Democrats have on a lot of different issues where it's like what I would like to be able to say is let the experts do their job. Right. And then and whatever you want to talk about, COVID or immigration or whatever, um, 
that's kind of the Democrat fallback is let the experts do it. And, you know, but for Republicans, that's so easy to fight back and say, you know, oh, the experts just claim to be these elite or whatever. So it'd be great if you just let teachers and educators write their curriculum and do their lesson planning because we've been trained to do that. We've gone to school for that. Um, and we've been doing this for, you know, X many, many years. Um, I don't think that's a message that carries very much weight nowadays nationwide or even statewide. Um, so, so I don't know. The answer to the question is I don't know. Um, that's where I would like it to be, but probably that's not the answer. Well, that's a better answer than I had. Which was what? None. No, none. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't. I would love to know how Democrats could fix their messaging issue. But, but there is yeah, that thing. If, if you're a school teacher, I, I I think you're pissed off right now. I mean, my brother's a 32 year uh, teacher of, of, of English literature in New Jersey. My wife's a retired school teacher. My wife not as political as my brother. But to to Brendan's point, I, I mean, everybody's an expert now. And Tommy actually makes the point that you know the profession of teaching is the only one that is has a peer review amongst non-peers which is to say that you're not going to put a group of citizens together to tell attorneys what to do you're not going to put a group of citizens together to tell mds what to do but you put a fucking group of citizens together with no offense some of them are well-intended people but a lot of them are morons on the on on the uh, my, my words not my brothers on the um you know, Board of Education, and yet they get to tell Brendan what he can do in his classroom. Doesn't really make a lot of sense. Now, I get it because they're the conduit to the community and so forth, but there is a lot of pressure on teachers that are not found in other professions. Well, it is fascinating, oh, too. Uh, you know, and, okay. Oh, no. Well, the computer will pick it up, and so it, it will be on the, the recording. So Okay. Uh, but I do think, I think it is fascinating um when we watch some of these school board meetings and some of these, uh, you know, town council meetings that go viral, like it does tell you, like some of these people in the public are pretty, you know, ridiculous. And a lot of times the dumbest people tend to be the loudest people. So <laughs> I've been accused of that, man. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it is fascinating. I mean, jump on YouTube and watch like school board meeting gone awry and like, you know, some of the crazy, I, I think even people on the far right would be like, oh, that's crazy, Cringing. you know? Yeah, yeah, just just really nuts. And Finn, what, what, what uh, percentage of parents do you get or folks that you're just like, oh, man, you're just a lunatic? <laughs> so luckily for me, it's, it's very low. Um, but to your point earlier about kind of like what, what's it like in California, some of those YouTube viral uh, school board meetings have gone uh, around the country, those are from San Diego. Uh, uh -huh. Some of the, the crazy ones are, um, they're actually San Diego or Poway school board meetings. So, uh, so yeah, they're out, they're here too. It's not just uh, in, you know, back east where, or back in the south that people are, are crazy at school board meetings. It happens here too. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the same with Jersey. I mean, California and Jersey are blue states, but yes, they're well represented by by conservatives and Republicans. And here's another show, Tristan, where we sound like we're beating up our conservative friends again. But the, this critical race divide is just another that, you know, the left seems on board with touching these aspects throughout history. And there are some on the right who just don't seem to be, which from everything I've heard thus far in our first half hour, seems like more of the same. You know, there's, there's, I guess there's that, you know, that yearning to broaden yourself isn't always there on the right, perhaps, which sounds like a shot, I guess. But Well, and, and I think, too, like, 
to take up for our right wing friends. Please. I think if you're saying that, you know, I don't necessarily want my eighth grader taught about the Tulsa race riots because of what that could imply about white people uh, being oppressors and black people being victimized. I think that's a fair argument to make you know, on the right. Like even even if it's taught really well by very competent teachers, you might feel like that's something for college or just something that, that should be taught a little bit later on with somebody who's got a little bit more um, worldview to put with that. And don't start to build that in eighth grade that, you know, that, man, white people through history have always been bad. So, you know, and, and to Fitton's point, it's typically specific critical race theory isn't taught, you know, to, to younger kids. But, but, I mean, that's an argument that makes sense. I mean, I could see that. I don't have kids, but I could understand not saying that you should be shielded from that completely, but maybe you shouldn't be taught that in, you know, in eighth grade civics class. I like that, taking up for our right-wing friends. Brendan, you say? <laughs> I mean, you know, again, there's age-appropriate levels. Obviously, you're not going to talk about certain things with, with third or fourth graders, but I think whether it's eighth grade, middle school, whatever you want to talk about, um, you need to understand some of the, the the basis of where your classmates are coming from. So it doesn't mean that you have to understand all the details about the Tulsa massacre. But if you have African-American classmates, or maybe you don't, which is even more of an issue, but you're going to go out in the world and meet someone that looks different than you, that believes something different from you, and you don't have to agree with them. And that's like a big thing in my classes. You don't have to agree with each other, but you need to walk out of class having some basic idea of, where they're coming from, where their point of view is coming from. Because it gets to your, your show here, Extreme Common Sense, you're trying to find middle ground, right? You can't find middle ground if you have no idea about the other person. And so if you go to college and you've never had middle school or high school class where they talked about um, the race issues in America, you get to college and you say, okay, I'll take a CRT class for the first time. And like, why are all these you know people upset about issues? Or why is there a divide in wealth in this country? Um, you're going to be behind and you're not going to be able to find that middle ground. So I think to find middle ground, you have to not agree, but you have to see the other side. No, no, I I agree with that. And I would say a lot of my uh, mentality towards, you know, African-Americans towards race was uh, coming to Berea College and taking some uh, what I found to be really fascinating uh, African-American studies classes. And it does really it's kind of like. It opens your eyes, um, you know, to other races in a way that you're, oh, my God, like it never occurred to me that, you know, that the Jim Crow laws uh, and redlining could have affected people in, you know, 1998. But it absolutely does. And like once somebody starts, uh, you know, making those connections for you, like it really kind of opens your mind up in a way that it wasn't open previous. I just, you know, I guess there's just a discussion to be made as for when that should be appropriate and how it's taught. I mean, I get the discussion of it, but no, I, I wish I had known some of that prior because I think when like Ray and I both went to, uh, you know, towns where, you know, our high schools, probably our grade schools were completely white. So like, you don't, you just tend to think, um, as you're kind of taught from, from the folks that you're around that, well, if people aren't succeeding, it's just because they're not trying and they're not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And then you sort of get a little bit older and you take these classes and you're like, oh my god there's a million things that i missed and i didn't know and it wouldn't have even occurred to me as a as a a white guy growing up in virginia so i I just think you know there is a room for a lot of people to learn 
Um, because it is easy to be ignorant. It's a lot easier to be ignorant on race than it is to really dive down and talk to your black friends and discuss, you know, all these situations and scenarios. Absolutely. Yes. And I think, too, it's pretty hard to argue that there's definitely racism in, in, our, in our laws, like fundamentally. I mean, well, there's definitely certain... I mean, as lovers of history, which obviously uh, Brendan as a teacher is, and I, I, I know that you are as well, Tristan, uh, the, one of the things that I find just so, uh, I don't think comical is necessarily the right word, disheartening probably, is, you know, that was two, three hundred years ago. It has nothing to do with today. Really? You just said yourself, you know, you, your eyes were opened a little bit how all of America's history is still manifests itself on a daily basis relative to black and white folks. And I think that's all that we're talking about, essentially, is that in order to have some basic understanding of that, you have to go back to the beginning. I don't know, what's it, 1609? Was that that 1609 project? Is that 1619. 1619, okay. Now, that that's way, that's way back. I guess that was the first, I, I don't even know that history terribly well. You may, Brendan. I guess that was the first 20... African Americans on a ship that arrived on, on uh, yep. on uh, our, our American shores or North American shores, but yep, I mean, country there weren't even that many. Um, didn't, didn't wasn't the first wasn't uh, Jamestown? Didn't they initially kind of get wiped out? I don't even know how many Europeans were here then. It couldn't have been many. A few hundred. Yeah, and I mean, right? Yeah, and uh, you know, like. 1619 project. I think it's a great resource. Um, it, there is a curriculum around that. I don't teach that curriculum because that's a little far back to go. Uh, right. But some of those resources are good. And that's that gets to the point like CRT or any of these history classes. It's just using these different points in time and these different resources to understand the picture doesn't mean you're teaching all year about Tulsa. Right. I'm not teaching all year about Jim Crow, but you have to have these resources where the kids or the uh, students are able to to kind of complete their picture together, right? So you you look at the 1619 project, you don't have to spend three months on it, but it is something that they should be made aware of, right? That that's because mm -hmm. a lot of students, I mean, and, and adults too, I think, sometimes think slavery started in in, in this country in you know 1798 or something. You know, like they think it's a relatively short period of time where there was slavery. That's not true. Do you find? Kids, and this is strictly you as a teacher question. Um, history's, I, I think the best history teachers, you know, make history come alive. I, I think the worst thing, people find it boring because you get a bunch of facts and figures. And to me, you know, history is continuous. I think people need to be made aware that you're living history today, right? I mean, think of the historical, regardless of your politics, I, I don't care what you think of him politically, but think a hundred years how Barack Obama is written in American history books. I mean, it's it's amazing. It would be equivalent to li living at the time of Washington, just in terms of his, you know, he's the first person who looked like him to be elected in a country like ours. That's monumental. But do kids find interest in history or do they kind of roll their eyes, Brandon? Well, I, yeah, that's a great point, because I think if you just teach from the textbook and you're just teaching the facts, you know, on this date, this is when Pearl Harbor happened. And this is, you know, those dates and stuff like that, that's boring. And kids don't see that in their life. They don't see the relevance. Right. Um, so so the point of teaching to me is to get the kids engaged and to do that. Yeah, you have to relate these current events that are happening right now to the history. Right. And so you can look at these covenant laws that are still around in Baltimore and Texas 
And if they don't understand where those covenant laws and housing came from, that there's no connection, right? So we have to talk about Jim Crow in order to understand the present laws. And um, we have to talk about, um, you know, Brown versus the Board of Education if we're going to talk about current Supreme Court issues. So, yeah, I think kids have to get engaged in class. I don't want to read from the textbook or lecture from the textbook. That's boring to me. Um, and it's another reason that I try to get these different viewpoints in because I got, you know, most of my classes, I have very few white students in. I have mostly uh, Mexican-American, African-American students in my class. So if all I'm doing is teaching about white, old white people, they don't connect, right? right? So, I mean, there's obviously I need to talk about some because historical figures, but I also need to relate to them and bring up stories about Mexican-Americans' experience during the Great Depression, not just white people in Oklahoma's experiences, because my students aren't from Oklahoma. They don't care what the Dust Bowl was like. They want to know what right. Mexican-Americans were like in California during the Great Depression. So um, it's about relating to the students, and that means looking at different perspectives and different points of view. Exactly right. Do you feel like, Fenton, uh, is there any danger, or have you noticed this? And this is, you know, just a little bit off the wall, but, like, have you ever noticed kids that, like, as white kids feel, I don't know, shamed in, in just learning basic history, or black or brown kids that feel angry at their white classmates while just teaching history? That's a great question. <laughs> no. Uh, no, yeah, it's a great question. And I would say no. Not any, like, uh, on the personal level. I mean, I've definitely gotten uh students that have been saying you know that's really messed up like how could people do that to fellow americans you know but they're upset about the situation or the history not at their fellow classmates or um or you know white students who say you know that's really shameful that that happened but they didn't feel shame themselves and if anything um in their their essays or their writings or whatever they're looking at ways which is kind of the point of teaching it looking at ways that they can improve the situation now like that's messed up that African-Americans weren't allowed to buy houses in the 1950s. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, I wonder if, you know, and I have students asking these questions to themselves. I wonder what could be done now. And that's the point is not for me to give them the answer, but for them to think of those questions. And so I don't see them take the shame on themselves as saying, oh, I'm a bad white person. But I see them take on, you know, this responsibility to, to kind of improve the situation. And obviously not every student, but... Um, but, no, you know, so. so here's a right. question that I've often asked throughout my adult life, and I wonder if I would get in trouble in a classroom for asking it. I grew up in Pumpton Plains, New Jersey, 38, 40 miles, call it, from New York City, arguably the most integrated uh, place on, uh, on the planet. And I grew up 38 miles away in a 100% white town. And it's funny, Jew, uh, uh, Trizen asked me when I said this, did I include Jewish people as white? I did. There were, there were Jewish folks in Pumpkin Plains, but no brown or black people. And I'm talking about being born in 1960, and I left there in 1988. We're now 33 years later. My brother lives in the house that I grew up in, we grew up in. And guess what, guys? That town remains exactly the fucking same way that it was when I left it 33 years ago. So my question is, was that by accident? Did that develop by accident or by design? And I leave it up to you to answer that question. It's rhetorical, obviously, because it wasn't by accident. But would I get in trouble in a classroom for asking that question? I mean, I would ask that question in a classroom. Uh, so, I, you know, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I guess depending on maybe if you're in Texas, you might. But uh, but See, no, I think I, th I think that's a good question to ask. Right. Like because you're not saying are are these people bad Are the people that live there now. Your brother lives there now. Is he a, is he a racist person for living there? No. This thing is, was this created 
you know, to be this way. And right. you know, we know the answer. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a, that's what you want the students thinking about. That's what you want students kind of wrapping their heads around, not just these random dates and facts. I, I certainly think, I certainly think so. Brendan, now, now Tristan, you towed the conservative line and I don't mean that in any disparaging way. That's what we try and do here. Cause you made a fair point. Now, would a conservative be, um, would it be justified for them to be opposed to that query of mine? Uh, I mean, I don't know how you could get in trouble for just asking that question. I think it's a pretty fair question. Uh, you know, I think we should often discuss uh, the integration of the races and how we sort of play a role in that and how history played a role in that. So, no, I think just asking the question and, and looking for a genuine answer, I think, is completely fair. And all the ways that it, you know, all the ways that we arrived at that, right? It's just, um, yeah, it, it's, it gets a little maddening at times, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's it's just such a tricky conversation to have. And because, you know, again, like you're looking at that town and you're probably going to go back and you're probably going to find different acts of racism or at least certain redlining or different things that may have kept your town completely white. So, you know, it's fascinating to talk about and it's fascinating to find the answers. You know, I grew up, I don't know, a thousand miles, 800 miles north of, of North Carolina. But in a lot of ways, to me, it was like Mayberry. I mean, it was fairly idyllic. You know, I'm not picking on the place I grew up at or my, my, my uh, brother raised his family in. It's still a wonderful little town, but it is 100% white when I was born in 60, when I left in 88, and now in 2021. So that's a question that I think has to be addressed. And if somebody gets upset at that question being asked, I think that's more on them, not on the person who's asking the question. I agree. And this is kind of a fun thing, too. Like my town at Fenton's been there is an extremely rural town. Uh, Rose Hill, Virginia. And I remember uh, my wife and I drove uh, drove there. It's, it's probably been three years ago. And there was a black guy walking through town. And we were so proud that Rose Hill actually had a black person, you know, that, that was in the town. Like, I was like, oh, my God, we had a black person. So, no, it, it is it is funny, the dynamics of some of these little towns and how they, uh, you know, tend to hold their race. And I'm sure there's a lot of black areas that to do the same thing in Mexican areas. I mean, Chinatown, for, for you know, for example, you know, they do tend to keep, you know, the, the ethnicity of the, the main folks. Right. But, uh, so, Finn, uh, one thing I try to do once a show is, uh, is is a little a little bit here because we don't yet have uh, have any sponsors. And since we're a little bit new to the podcast game and before we hire a sales staff, I like to take a break and discuss uh, something. So today I'm going to discuss Jesse Smollett. You guys may remember the actor Jesse Smollett from 2019. I think he's a Democrat. Uh, he certainly used politics to create a narrative by setting up an attack on himself from, air quote, Trump supporters to try and keep his acting job. After reviewing many key notes from the trial, uh, this message is to help anyone planning a fake Republican attack on themselves for publicity in the future. By my estimation, Jussie made two major mistakes in planning. First, the Trump-supporting attackers were black, so it was very easy for the police to alibi Trump's actual two black supporters. It would have made the crime much more realistic to use white attackers. The first cop on the scene heard the sentence, black men wearing Make America Great Again hats, and he literally wrote down, fake attack. His second mistake was getting a hand job from one of his attackers. Great advice to follow when planning a fake attack is don't get hand relief from your proposed attackers. It's not fair to ask someone to give you a wank and then beat you up. 
Jesse's job will next job will definitely not be in casting. <laughs> that that case was settled, wasn't it? When, when they he was found guilty, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was found guilty. So, yeah, I just found that fascinating, and I know the right had sort of piled on, sort of because it became a political attack. So I, I wanted to have a little fun, but that was really a stupid thing to do. Kind of stupid. Like the burning, yeah, the, yeah, the, pretty, the fox burning of the Christmas tree. Boy, that was a day's worth of news compared. It was being compared to Pearl Harbor and everything else until they realized, yeah, this was probably a homeless guy a bit out of his mind who happened to pick our tree. It could have been any other tree. That's right. sort of how that played out, wasn't it? Fox had some egg on their face. I don't know if they would ever own, own oh, no, having no, some no, egg on their no. face. But, yeah, no, completely true. I mean, they wanted it to be some left-wing, perpetrated, organized right. attack on their Christmas tree. And, yeah, it was a drunken homeless guy. Yeah, it was a drunken homeless guy. Well, Brendan, I wish you all the best in the classroom. I'm envious, man. Are you? Are you? How, how many years have you been teaching history? Uh, I believe this is eight. Oh, nice. Eight or nine. Okay. I, I lose track. <laughs> and San Diego proper or uh, uh, one of the suburbs? Yep, San Diego proper. Nice. I finally made yep. it out, no, 2018. It's You know, San Diego's one of those cities, uh, like Nashville comes to mind, Austin, Texas, where generally everybody who visits is like, man, what a great place. I'd love to go back. And San Diego certainly, and I'd always heard that about it and finally made it out there, and, and it was wonderful. It really was. It's a beautiful place. It's it's hard to go wrong with 80-degree uh, weather and the beach. So, <laughs> well, Yeah, what's the old joke? Easiest uh, job in the world is a weatherman in San Diego? Right. <laughs> I believe it. I assume you've been Trisdon. Yeah, I, I went out for uh, for Finn's wedding, and I would like to get back out there again sooner than later. It was really nice. Yeah, it really is. As a best friend, you'd think he'd come out a little bit more, but you know, you would. You <laughs> would. That's that's fair. That's I, I did fair hear argument. on his show the other day, though, he was talking about his best friend alcohol. So I don't know where on the totem pole I fall. Oh, I do. I'm going to say yeah, you're second. <laughs> I'm going to say you're second. It's, it's, that does shift day to day, I would say. Today it's you because you're doing the show. Uh, tomorrow for New Year's Eve, it's certainly going to be alcohol. Yes. <laughs> yes. I saw something sort of off the topic, but still on California. I was, for whatever reason, one of those Google rabbit holes, but it was like the 20 best um, uh, universities, public universities. And, and California was five of the top ten. Like uh, UCLA was on there. Um, of course, you know, Berkeley was on there. May have been San Diego, but like five out of ten, um, which is a tribute, and, and probably the public schools in California are first or second in the country, because people people kind of take a dump on California, and and it's really misguided. The state has a lot going for it. It's got problems, but well, I don't need to advocate, Brendan. You're the you're the <laughs> citizen out there. You can advocate. Yeah, no, I mean you're exactly right. There's, it's not perfect. There's always things to improve on, but I think uh, you know, if talking about public education, I think it's, um, I think we 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 put up a good fight. So yeah, it's, uh, it always could get better. But we're, we're doing level. and that yeah. expands to the college yeah. level. The, the the university system in California is really second to none. Yeah, we got a uh, uh, pre K coming out, uh, free pre K for kids. I uh, think next year maybe. Um, so again, just kind of getting them. A little bit younger and uh, kind of even in that playing field earlier. So I think that's another great step that California has been doing. Is Governor Newsom getting uh, his re you know reestablishing, getting his steps beneath <laughs> him after the recall? I don't know. I think he's still maybe a little wobbly from that one, but uh, yeah, I think he'll he'll ride himself. 
Yeah, I thought when I first saw that guy, I was like, oh, man, if you were casting a president, it would be him, right? I thought, oh, this guy. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, he's got the look and and the uh, verbal ability and so forth. But, yeah, I guess we shall see. Tristan, what else you got? Big New Year's Eve plans? Uh, you know what? I'm just going to the Galaxy Bowling Center, Ray, to celebrate my New Year's. That's I don't good. know about you. Yo, I'll be long gone from the Galaxy Bowling Center. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I would like to. If we were going to do anything, I would go to Galaxy. But I think we're probably celebrating from home. Quiet New Year's at home. Watching Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen. Get drunk on the uh, air. Yeah, sure. pretty much. Yeah. yeah. How about you guys? Nah, same. I'll be home quiet. I've gotten old. And Nice. Brendan will actually celebrate three years after us. What's it, 1030 out there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Three yeah. hours. I, I'll aim for three hours, but yeah. <laughs> three three yeah. hours, I think. More so than three years, right? Like oh, did I say three years? <laughs> three hours. Yeah. Ah, we can correct that in editing. Three years. That's right. No, that's Kentucky. <laughs> We're three years behind everybody. Mark Twain said he wanted to. Mark Twain said when he died, he wanted it to be in Kentucky because no one would know for 10 years. all right guys i guess uh that wraps up another episode of extreme common sense with tristan and ray and today brendan uh it's been a lot of fun learning a little bit about critical race theory and uh ray do you like to would you like to thank our friends yeah absolutely oh our friends troy yeah troy does a great job front porch studio and uh um Mr. Stobleg. Nate? Yeah, Nate. Yeah. Nate, who I haven't, I've only conversed with, you know, this way. I've never actually met. I look forward to that. And Brendan, if you're ever yeah, in, so. back in, so you guys were Berea College buds? Yep, that's right. Where'd you grow up, Brendan? Uh, all over. I, uh, mostly in Seattle, but um, San Francisco a little bit. And then uh, after Berea, I went to Boston. So kind of bounced around one step ahead of the law. So you've seen a lot of the country. See, that's another uh, nice perspective, you know? That broadens you just sort of naturally. Yeah. No, it's yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to kind of see the different geographic influences on people around the around the country. Yeah, absolutely. Facebook All right, I think yeah, check us out on Facebook, uh, Extreme Common Sense with Trisden and Ray. Fenton, you, like Ray, both need to start a Facebook so you can <laughs> come like Extreme Common Sense with Trisden and Ray on Facebook. Just spell out T-R-I-Z-D-O-N, and uh, we're, we're pretty easy to find. So, guys, thanks for listening. Have a great week, and Brandon, we look forward to so catching much, you next man. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I'd love to, love to do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Extreme Common Sense with Trisden and Ray. We hope you had fun and look forward to taking on another topic next week.